So every Sunday afternoon, uh, we usually have a Skype call with Stephanie's parents, my in-laws. And it's a great opportunity for our kids to run around like banshees and completely prevent any adult conversation from happening. Uh, the big news last week in the Fitton household was that they got a new washing machine. And it's notable because their old washing machine they had had for 40 years. And so they're replacing this machine that had served them for four decades, all of their, raising all their kids, multiple moves. This machine had lasted. And it's remarkable. And I found, my, I found the words of my dad coming out of my mouth, and I said, well, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? <laughs> and it's true. There is truth to that, that they don't make them like that anymore. They, our, our appliances today are often made of cheap component parts, made it from China or wherever, or, or out of plastic, and uh, you don't get things designed to last like that anymore. And um, there's a conspiracy theory that I'm totally on board with uh, called planned obsolescence, and how companies will purposefully build into the design of their technology or their appliances that they will fail, that they'll have a shortened lifespan, and so then force you to buy the next upgrade or replacement. Uh, this capitalistic greed that uh, makes our appliances fail. Apple was actually in the news in this a few years ago, that they were caught purposefully throttling the speed and functionality of their old model phones, so they would force you to buy the next iPhone, the iPhone 18 or whatever we're up to right now. But this, this whatever, it, whether it's corporate greed and trying to build things to fail or just cutting corners and, and cheap component parts, there's things that today are built not to last. And so I will likely never have a washing machine that lasts me 40 years, uh, which is a painful reality as we're buying a house and we'll need to buy a new washing machine. But the purpose of this small rant by, by way of analogy, is to ask a question. Is your faith built to last? Does your faith have what it takes to persevere, to endure the length of your life into eternity, to uh, be steadfast amidst all of the difficulties and, and, and hard things that life throws at you? Most of us, probably all of us, know people that have walked away from their Christian faith. Whether it was the difficulties of the problem of evil they couldn't find a satisfactory answer to, or the allure of the world and the culture that just kind of pulled them away from their faith, or just that slow stagnation of someone who's been in church for years and never seen any real life transformation and woke up one day realizing that they don't believe anymore. I don't think it's really appropriate or helpful for us to try to psychoanalyze other people's journeys and their, their hearts and motivations. Um, so I'm going to ask you, even though it might be tempting, to, to not hear this passage and think about other people in your life, but to hear God's word to you this morning. Is your faith built to last? Will your faith endure life's difficulties or is it comprised of cheap component parts designed to fail? For some of us, this, this question might present itself 
when we're dealing with frustration and maybe we're not seeing the growth or the fruit of the Christian life that we've been told it will come. And we ask, you know, what am I not doing right in this Christianity thing? Do I have what it takes to follow Jesus? Or maybe we even think, I feel like I am doing everything right and I'm not seeing the fruit, so is this even real? Do I have what it takes? And to that question, I think our passage from 2 Peter 1 offers a very simple response. Yes, your faith is built to last if you choose it. In this passage from 2 Peter 1, I do invite you to open your Bibles to it and follow along. We have this exhortation to virtue and godliness that's rooted in our salvation in Christ for the sake of us being effective and fruitful for the kingdom of God. And the main point I want to press in on us today is that we have everything we need to live out a lasting, effective, fruitful faith if only we will cooperate with what God is already doing. And there's an invitation for us here to go deeper into Jesus. So let's look at our passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let's pause there and explore the weight of what this is saying to us. That, that the divine power of grace, that God has given us divine power, this is the foundation for our whole Christian life. And when Peter's talking about divine power, he's talking about everything he's done for us in Jesus Christ. It's God's active and irresistible redeeming grace that has come to us in Christ and through the Holy Spirit that now dwells in us. Divine power is in you who are in Christ. And this divine power has granted to us, has given us as a gift, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let's hear what a comprehensive set that is. Life and godliness. Divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to these things. Everything we need to navigate life in this world and to live a life that's pleasing to God. Every question of life, every concern, every temptation or problem or obstacle or tension before you, the power to address them has already been given to you. And everything that pertains to godliness, your life in Christ, your walk of holiness, all our struggles with sin and the fallenness of our flesh, all our uh, frustrations with growth or lack of progress to mature faith, divine power for these things are yours in Jesus Christ. You have everything that you need. Divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to this set that is comprehensive of all of our life and into eternity. We have everything we need by this gift of grace. And then it goes on that through this, his precious and great promises, we have, uh, through them, we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now that is a statement. We are called and invited to be partakers of divine nature. Through what we've already been given, everything we need through divine power, we are called to share in the life of the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're called to partake, to be participants, to be united with God as he gives himself to us in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And this partaking in the divine nature, I think, is a fascinating and miraculous picture of what our relationship with the Lord is. We tend to talk in our evangelical circles about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And while there's truth in that, I think it's a little limiting for us. And did you know that the, the uh, phrase personal relationship with Jesus is not actually in the Bible? That's not the language that the New Testament uses. The language of the New Testament is this partaking in divine nature, we talk about our union with Christ. The New Testament says again and again that we are in Christ. And look at the distinction between talking about a personal relationship versus being in Christ. If you're in a personal relationship with Jesus, then we have this idea of two autonomous people that are getting to know each other. You know, I'm my own person, you're your own person, let's get together. Let's get to know each other and have this personal relationship. But we are differentiated people. Versus, if we are in Christ, if we are to be united with Christ, that carries a deeper notion that we are consumed and absorbed into his life. And Galatians 2 says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's not that I'm lost and my personality and individuality is lost in Christ, but that when I'm in Christ, I become more alive. That's who I was made to be. And there's no differentiation when there's union, when there's being in someone else, when there's partaking in someone else's nature. The differentiation or my autonomy or or my, my lordship over my own life is gone. And that's what makes me more alive. We are called to partake in the divine nature, to be deeply and intimately involved in the life of the Trinity. We get a taste of this every week when we come to Holy Communion, where in our liturgy we pray that we might become partakers of his most blessed body and blood. This is us becoming united with him, of us going deeper in to the life that Jesus invites us to. And so we have this image of going in Christ, being in Christ, of being united to him. And I want to propose to you that if we're in Christ, Christ is God, God is infinite, and the riches of his life are unsearchable, that means that there is always more for us to go deeper into. There's always more for us to dive into the life that Jesus holds out for us because he's God, he's infinite, and we are to be in him. And so the process of Christian growth and maturity is not one of self-improvement. It's not one of me trying to work on myself and become more holy or to work on these certain characteristics to become more godly. It's not about self-improvement, but rather going deeper into Jesus. Going deeper into the unsearchable riches of his abundant life. If he's God, if he's infinite, there's always more. 
No matter how long you've been at this, no matter how mature you are in your faith, there's always more that Jesus invites you into. We've been invited to this. Through that that, uh, gift of divine power and grace that we've been given, this is what we're called further up and further into. And so Peter goes on, verse 5 then, to our exhortation. For this very reason, for this very reason that you have been called into the glory and excellence of Jesus, that you've been given divine power for all things that you need, you're invited to partake in the divine nature. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And it goes into this list of characteristics and godly virtues and We need to ask carefully, what is this list? And I'd love to dive deep into all of the the different characteristics, but that's not today's sermon. But it's easy to see this list as a to-do list for growth in Christian maturity. For you do these things, and then that's how you become a good Christian. You graduate from uh, virtue, then you move on to knowledge. You check the box of knowledge, you move on to self-control, and so on down the list as you grow uh, in mature faith. But let's remember this foundation. For this very reason, that you already have everything you need for your salvation. You are already invited to partake in the divine nature before you get to anything on this list. You don't need to earn your way to God's love. You don't need to earn your way into God's salvation. Still, we're called to make every effort to these things. So what's the difference here? And I think we need to understand the distinction that earning is very different than effort. Philosopher Dallas Willard says this, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. So grace is not opposed to our efforts. Grace is opposed to our attitude that I need to earn this. That I am am the one who has the control over the mechanisms of my salvation. That is what grace comes against and tears down. So To make every effort to supplement your faith is not a way for us to earn our salvation, but rather to live it out. It's not saving ourselves, but understanding this gift of grace that we've been given deserves every effort from us. Christian theology has always made a distinction between our justification and our sanctification. That we have been justified by the blood of Christ on the cross. That we have been made right with God. That's what justified means. We've been made right with him. And now we are in this process of sanctification. That we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And we have the agency to cooperate with him in that. We have been justified. That's a fact. That's done. That's complete. You are in Christ. Now you are being sanctified by the Spirit who is making a saint out of you. And so this list that we come to is those healthy characteristics, those godly virtues that are going to unfold in a Christian's life when they are partakers of the divine nature. 
And this supplementing, this making every effort, is simply our cooperation with what God is already doing in us. So when we read, make every effort, it simply means stop trying to swim upstream in the rivers of grace. Stop trying to work against what God is doing. Cooperate with what Jesus wants to do in you and through you. Live in those rhythms of grace and walk in the way of Jesus. So we're called to make every effort. And I want to ask you, what is it that you put the most effort into in your life? Is it your job? Your family? Your hobbies? I think Peter's word to us here is that if you're going to put effort into anything in this life, let it be this. Because there is nothing more important. There is nothing more worth your time and your effort. There is nothing more wonderful that you can invest your life into than the life of Jesus. So supplement the faith given to you with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And like I said, it's another sermon that I would love to dive into all these characteristics and how we do uh, put effort into them. But these qualities are those which, when you have the Holy Spirit, when you are in Christ, you have the ability to choose to cultivate, to choose to develop as you are orienting your life more and more toward being in Christ, to going deeper in Him. You have that ability to choose for this life that Jesus has given to you. And these are the qualities of a faith that is built to last and to endure toward eternity, and to be fruitful in this world. So make every effort to cooperate with the gift you've been given for salvation. Verses 8 and 9 then kind of show the effects of this. Verse 8 talks about, here's what happens when a believer has these qualities, and verse 9 says, here's what it reveals when a believer doesn't have these qualities. Verse 8 is saying that, To cultivate these qualities, to possess and increase in them, will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful for the kingdom of God. And look at how this this positive outcome is framed negatively. I find really interesting. Peter doesn't say, if you have these qualities and increase in them, then you will be effective and fruitful. But rather that they will keep you, guard you from being ineffective and unfruitful. And the framing of this speaks to me that uh, what our natural human inclinations tend towards, that that I'm naturally, by my own uh, fallen flesh, I'm going to be ineffective and unfruitful on my own strength for the work of God. And so to guard against that, to work towards better, cultivate these qualities and to focus on being in Christ. And to realize that we are naturally ineffective, naturally unfruitful, brings some freedom, actually, for us. Because we know who is the one who brings the fruit, who is the one that makes us effective, and how do we cooperate with him. And this is just understanding that by our own nature, simply by who we are and the the world we live in, if your soul is a garden, that it's going to be under attack from weeds within and pests without. 
Weeds growing up underneath us trying to choke out the life and, and fruitful growth of Christ. And there are insects and birds and deer coming from outside that working to eat at what you are trying to grow and prevent your fruitfulness. So cultivate the garden of your life in Christ. Make every effort to protect and grow and nurture this life of grace within you. In verse 9, then states a negative outcome. What happens when a Christian lacks these qualities? For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter brings it back to the foundation. You've forgotten who you are in Christ. This person has forgotten the grace that they've been given, the forgiveness of their sins. They've chosen to become blind again, even after God has opened their eyes. So to grow deeper in Christ, first let's remember that foundation. That you have been cleansed from your sins. You are called into Jesus' own glory and excellence. You've been brought into the divine nature. You are in Christ. This is everything. Don't forget it. Don't be blind to the miraculous and glorious importance of this for you and for the world. Remember who you are because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And then live into that. You've been justified, redeemed and made right with God. So now cooperate with the Spirit as you are being sanctified. So if you are a Christian who's ever at any point looked at your life and been frustrated by what you see as a lack of growth or progress or fruitfulness, you've wondered maybe if your faith is built to last or if any of this is real in the first place. This is a word for you. First, let's remember that we have been saved by grace. Let's remember the foundation of the gospel that has redeemed us. Then drink deeply of those waters of the gospel of Christ and know that you've been redeemed, your sins washed away, you've been justified and made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing left to justify because in Christ you are forgiven, you are free, and you are loved. If that's not the foundation of our life, we're not going to go anywhere. So we begin here and we rest in that truth, knowing that the, the greatest work is done. And then in the knowledge of that miracle of grace, let every effort be made to cooperate with what God is doing as he makes a saint out of you. If you have been saved by grace, your sins have been washed away, the greatest miracle that has ever happened in your life, then orient your entire life around this miracle of grace. Make every effort because nothing else deserves your effort like this. There is nothing better that you can give your life to, brothers and sisters. And as we remember and as we cooperate with God, then just watch the Lord work. Watch the Lord turn your life upside down. Watch him transform you and, and bring you into more and more joyful and abundant life. Watch him work in you and through you 
by his grace and for his glory. I've been thinking and praying a lot this week about what my final word to this congregation should be, uh, what God would have me to speak to you one last time before my family and I move. And as God usually does with the Holy Spirit, it's right in line with this passage. And it boils down to this. Christ Church Fox Chapel, I want to say to you, there is nothing more important than Jesus. There is nothing better than Jesus. There's nothing worth more uh, of your whole life than Jesus. He is so good, so gracious, so loving to those of us sinners who do not deserve it. Jesus gave his life for you. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, to bring you into eternity, and even now to become partakers of his divine nature. And there is nothing that deserves our effort, nothing that deserves our life and our devotion more than this. And church, you have everything you need because you are in Christ. So let nothing hinder you. I pray with all my heart as we say goodbye that this church would be a place that would be set on fire for Jesus. He's already done so much in this place and has worked miracles. And I pray that this congregation would be a place where people, where you are pursuing Jesus with all that you have because he is worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have shown the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ into our hearts. And I pray that you would change us. And I pray that you would set us on fire for you. And I pray that we would know the glory and the excellence that you've invited us into. And that in all of these things, your name might be glorified. Amen.